we hit the second last sermon in our series through Colossians, and I really trust it's been a good one for you. Um, I trust that there has been some conviction. I trust that there has been encouragement and, and comfort at the same time. And uh, so we're asking the question, as we usually do, is Jesus enough? But more specifically this morning, is Jesus enough for our work? Is Jesus enough for my job? Is he enough for my work life? Um, I don't know, maybe some of you are already doing your dream job, but I would consider this one a pretty cool job. A hotel uh, in Finland hired a member of staff as a professional sleeper to test the comfort of their beds. The individual sleeps in a different one of the hotel beds each night and writes a review about her satisfaction with each one. I'm just scanning to see if Eduardo is here because I think I'll be really good at that, and so I'm going to chat to him afterwards. Um, maybe you think uh, your job is boring, um, but uh, listen to this, guys. Um, this is uh, literally, uh, this guy has this job. A man in the UK currently has the job, and he spends his days um, literally watching paint dry. He spends his days painting sheets of cardboard uh, to test how long new paint mixes take to dry and watching for any changes in color and texture. Now, I, I have no idea what his job satisfaction levels are like, but I'm hoping they pay him a lot of money uh, to do that. But now, coming back to our Colossians context, uh, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, Paul now shifts from marriages, and, and then he went off to children, and then parenting, he now shifts towards slaves. So this might yet be the most relevant sermon to you in the whole series, if you see your job as exactly that. But according to theological historians, uh, slaves back uh, in the first century, some of them had it incredibly rough. Um, they weren't paid. They were made to do very, very menial tasks. Uh, they were often abused, tortured. Uh, in fact, uh, some historians say that they could, have, they could be killed by their masters uh, without any reason. And so they had no rights whatsoever. They had no civil rights or human rights whatsoever. Um, other slaves had it a bit better. They were more, some were more educated than their masters and uh, were put in charge of estates, put in charge of businesses, and so they even earned fairly good wages where they could eventually buy their own freedom. And so no matter which end of the scale they were on, Paul uh, gives them some principles or Paul gives them some instructions that would, if they applied them, would, would literally transform the way they work, would transform their work life, principles that I believe that we can apply to our particular context too. So our proposition this morning goes like this, Jesus is enough to transform our work lives through Christ-empowered principles. Because firstly, as we've seen throughout chapter 3, Jesus, through faith in Jesus, he transforms our, our lives. He, he makes us a new person and he gives us a new nature after him, like his nature. And because he makes us new, we are then therefore enabled to obey these, these principles or these instructions that will transform our work lives, transform our concept of work, and we trust also our workplace. So I want you to grab your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 3. Uh, you can grab a Bible in front of you uh, in the chair pockets or jump onto your Bible app or you can, you're welcome to follow on screen. But I want you to see God's Word for yourself. So here we go, Colossians chapter 3 and then we'll dip into chapter 4. 
Paul moves on to servants or slaves, and he says, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleases, but with, with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. In chapter 4, verse 1, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Okay, so here we go. Our work life can be transformed by three principles. You can find them on the flip side of your bulletin if you like. Working with God, number one. Number two, working with sincerity. And then lastly, working with accountability. Number one, we can have a transformed work life by working for God. Have a look at verse 23 again with me. Paul says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, he says. Okay, so let's, let's just uh, start off on the same page and let's just think, what is it that you do? You know, maybe some of you are uh, accountants, maybe some of you are lawyers, maybe some of you are doctors, maybe some of you are stay-at-home moms, maybe some of you are students, or, or maybe some of you are pastors. Uh, whatever you do, or whatever it might be, Paul says, you are doing it for someone that we might not immediately think that we're doing it for. And so if we're going to have a transformed work life, then we are going to need a, a paradigm shift in terms of who we think we're actually working for. And Paul tells us very clearly here, you are not doing it for man. As a school teacher, you might think that you're serving or you're working for your principal or for the kids or, or for, the, for, the, for the parents or you might be thinking you're working for your CEO or, or your clients or you might be working for yourself. And Paul says, no, you are working for God. In fact, he says it so clearly at the end. He says, you are serving the Lord Christ. But here's the deal. Here's where the, where the paradigm shift starts to come in. As we serve the Lord, the direct recipient of our serving Him is our earthly master, is our CEO, is the principal, are the clients or, or the customers. And so this must have been a massive paradigm shift for the slaves as they sat there listening to this part of the letter being read out. And it has to be a massive paradigm shift for us as well. Because think about it for a second, that the main character, the main reason, the, the main motivation as to why you do what you do, and, and in the case of the slaves, why they had to do what they did, was something no longer earthly. It's no longer earthly. It's not about your boss. It's not about your clients. It's not, not even about that, that paycheck necessarily at the end of the month. But what you do now has taken on something divine. There's something divine about what you do. There's something spiritual about what you do. There's something holy and eternal about what you do because, Paul says, you now serve the Lord Christ. And He is all of those things. Basically, what He's telling us is there's no longer a divide between the, the, the secular and the sacred. God is over all and in all and above all. And therefore, the way we work should reflect that. And so if that's true, what does that then look like? Paul says, have a look at this again. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. 
So if God is going to be at the center of what we do, then you're not just to do it wholeheartedly, not just to do it with passion and vigor. It's way more than that because that Greek word for heartily there refers to the soul. So there's a whole new way that you do a bank reconciliation statement now. Not just with the mind, not just with your intellect, but from your soul because he says you're serving the Lord Christ. As if Paul is saying to the slaves, listen, I know some of you are way more educated than your masters. And I know you're bringing in a lot of money for them. You're making them look good and there's, there's not a lot of hope for you. Maybe some of you are not earning a big salary. Maybe some of you have no hope of ever achieving your freedom. But guys, you need to change your mind. It's not about your earthly boss. You're serving Jesus. You're working for Jesus. And I know others of you, you know, you're you're doing very menial tasks. You're being abused. It's terrible. As hard as it is, you need to know you're serving Jesus. And if you're serving Jesus in whatever you are doing, then we do it from the soul, no matter the earthly circumstances that we're in. But we're human, right? We, we need motivation. And, and, and our earthly bosses know this too, and, and at times they, they motivate us with increased commissions. Hey, you know, if, you, if, you, if your sales you know, hit this level, then I'll, I'll increase your commission to this level. If you bag that client, then I'll give you a raise. Or if you work hard, if you do this, I'll give you a promotion. But now God is the ultimate boss. He's our ultimate master. And so look at the motivation that he gives us, in particular for the slaves, because again, maybe they're hearing this letter and they're going, yes, I get it. And maybe you're thinking it too. I get the theory, Jason. But for them, I mean, they're stuck in hopeless situations. Some of them are saying, I don't even get a salary. I'm, 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 you know, hopefully I get three meals a day. So look at what Paul says. Whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. Here we go. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. He's saying you need to know you will receive a divine, glorious inheritance one day. And God is so amazingly counterintuitive to the world. So counterintuitive to the way the world works. Because the world says to the slaves back then, hey slaves, if you work really hard, you might you might be set free. Or sunrise, if you work really hard, you might get that promotion. You might get that raise. But look at how Paul worded this. He's saying, we are to work for the Lord and not for men because we have a heavenly reward. He says, you will receive because you belong to the Lord and therefore you can and must work for the Lord. In other words, the fruit of receiving this heavenly reward one day, being in glory one day, is that you get to work for the Lord. You get to serve. We get to serve the Lord in whatever we do. And so as Christians, you already have an inheritance waiting for you simply because God has lavished His grace and mercy on you. Furthermore, that word knowing is a present participle, meaning you need to be thinking this all the time. This is how we are to to think. Because again, slaves, I know it's tough. I know you're in a hopeless situation, but this needs to be at the forefront of your mind. This is what you will receive one day. Sunrise, business might be booming. Business might be dragging. There may be no business at all, but this is what needs to shape our minds. 
Because all of this is momentary. This is your momentary reality. He's saying your eternal reality is coming. You will be with Jesus. We will be with Jesus in glory, in a glorified state for all eternity. And Jesus has secured it for you. Not you, not me. Jesus has secured it for you on the cross. There's nothing we could do. And so God is keeping it for you. There's nothing that you can do or your present situations and circumstances can do to take it from you. He's keeping it for you. He has secured it for you. So out of knowing that, we then get to serve Jesus in whatever we do. And we do it from our hearts. We do it from our souls. Point number two. We can have a transformed work life by working with sincerity. Look at verse 22. Paul says, Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleases, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And so what we see here in these verses is submission or obedience. Paul says, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. And he's saying, there's two ways that you can obey. There's two ways that you can be submitted. There's an insincere submission or a genuine or a sincere submission. Now, no one talks about obedience. No one talks about submission in the workplace today. This is like first century slave talk. But in a sense, if we think about it, there is a... There is a degree of submission in the workplace. I mean, if you're the tea person, you're not sitting around the boardroom table making all the decisions. You're just simply asking how many sugars do you want, right? And you're not parking under the shaded parking area. You have to wait like five or ten years to get to upper management before your car can get under the shaded area. You know? And so you are submitted, in a sense, to your particular job description. You are submitted. You are to obey what your particular role is in your company. But Paul says the way you go about it, there is a way that you go about being submitted to it in the workplace. He says there is an insincere way, he says, with eye service as people pleases. So, you know, that means you're, 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 you're cheerful, you're kind of like employee of the month when the boss is around. But then you're like, it's WhatsApp, it's Pinterest, it's Facebook, it's, it's this and it's, it's that when he's not around. Now, I'm not condoning it for a second, but I'm saying, because I was thinking so much about, and I read so much about these slaves in the first century context, and I'm, and I'm saying, I don't condone kind of like the goofing off, but I get it. I mean, for them, again, back in that, in, that, in that context, many of them stuck in hopeless, hopeless situations, in terrible conditions, no stimulating work. And so I can understand them goofing off when, when the master is not around, and then the only possible motive for obeying their masters was to avoid punishment, was avoid being killed sometimes. But what about us? What are the possible reasons for us to be people pleasers or I service people? Maybe your job is not stimulating enough, but hey, it, it, it pays the bills, that's why, why you do it. Or maybe you're just buying time until you, you find something better. Or maybe you, you just don't respect your boss. But again, remember point number one, we're ultimately serving the Lord Christ. And so whatever the reason might be for you not working the way you should be working, it's not right. Because Paul tells us the correct motive to have when we work and, and what we do. He tells us, he says, we are to have sincere hearts. 
And the phrase sincerity of heart literally means to have a singleness of heart. It means to be free of pretense, free of hypocrisy, free of two-facedness. And we are to have the singleness of heart because we're serving one boss ultimately. Now I know exactly what you're thinking. You're thinking, Jason, you have no clue. All you do is drink coffee all week and read your Bible. You have no clue about the pressure that I'm under, the actual work that I do, the, the, the office politics that I'm involved in, the pressures, the clients, the demands, the this and the that. You know, this just sounds like Christianese talk that's devoid of reality, right? Well, firstly, I don't drink that much coffee. <laughs> Secondly, I just want to show you something that might help you. Because... You're right. I mean, I don't know all of your situation. I have an idea of what some of you are going through, but it's still difficult for me to, to, to fully grasp what you're going through. But Paul, we need, to, we need to think about it this way. Paul doesn't just simply bark off a command without letting us know how important it is and then how to do it. So the next thing he tells us will hopefully help you. Look at this. He says, But with sincerity of heart... Fearing the Lord. So we're to fear the Lord, sunrise. There's no sugar coating it. Fearing the Lord will, he says, will give you a singleness of heart. It will give you a single motivation. It will help you have God-centered ethics as opposed to man-centered ethics. It will help you work consistently well because we know that the Lord's eyes are on us all the time. It will influence the way we, we interact and we respond to colleagues and clients and our, and our bosses. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to try and explain the text to you so that we understand the text but I also wanted to try to be helpful practically, and sometimes the best way to do that is to simply ask us some questions, kind of like an internal order to find out where we're at and how we're doing. And so John Piper um, offers some practical questions that I think can help us towards the singleness of heart. So we'll put them up on the screen, and how I want you to treat them is almost like, a, is almost like prayer, like a time of devotion between you and the Lord. So kind of picture yourself driving to work and you've got these five questions and you're working through these questions as a prayer between you and the Lord. Or maybe you take some, a moment at, you know, while you're working and you, and you ask these questions as prayers before the Lord. And so the first one uh, John Piper asks is, why would the Lord like this done? You're sitting there at your desk. You've got a pile of work. Why would the Lord like this done? Now, I don't want to influence your answers. You, you need to have, you need to come up with answers for yourself between you and the Lord. But I was thinking, I believe in a very, very sovereign God who has placed us, uh, a God of the details. He's placed us in particular spaces uh, for, for uh, particular times. And so he's asking you to be a good steward of where he's placed you. He's asking you to be a, a good steward of the work, of the role that he's given you. Number two, how would the Lord like this done? So firstly, maybe you know, not procrastinate, but I'm thinking in absolute dependence on Him, according to your grace-enabled ability. Number three, when would the Lord like this done? Now, to be honest with you, I struggled with this one. I sat at my desk and I'm thinking, Ooh, that's not so easy for me. 
Because, I, you know, I don't know about you, but in my world, there's always something to be done. There's always a sermon to prep. If I prep my sermon by Wednesday, then, hey, guess what? There's another Sunday coming. You know, or there's always a meeting to prepare for. There's, there's always someone I get to see, almost someone I, I get to have coffee with, uh, and, you know, or there's always something. But on the other hand, I'm also called to be a husband. I'm also called to be a dad. And so at some point, I've got to get up from my desk and go, okay, I, I have to go home now. I have to go fetch Paige and take her to gymnastics because my wife has a full-time job too. And I have to leave the sermon prep. Or I can't answer that email right now. And so this is something that you have to wrestle with with the Lord because you know, there are expectations on you at work, but there also might be expectations at home. And for those of you who are single, at some point you also got to go, you know what, I, I, I just got to get up because... I can't sit here. My health is deteriorating. I'm part of a faith family, and I want to be part of my community group. And so these are things that you need to wrestle with. Number four, will the Lord help me to do this? Yes. A resounding yes. But are you dependent on Him? Are you consciously aware of the Lord in your workplace? chatting with a good friend um, about you know, the, the challenge of you know, when you get home after work, are you able to, to switch off? Are you able to leave work at home? And we were talking about a, like this grace-enabled discipline. You know, when you're driving home, to cry out to the Lord for help and say, okay, Lord, I'm leaving work now. There's a ton of stuff that I still need to do. There, there might even be like some, you know, maybe you had some tension or altercations at work and they, they're unresolved. But Lord, give me the discipline, gear up my mind to go home and be at home, to be a dad, to be a wife, to be a mom, to be a, a husband. And then when you're driving to work the next morning, Lord, give, help me gear up my mind now for work, to be a good steward at work. But he will help you. Number five, what effect will this have for the Lord's honor? And if I can sabotage one of John Piper's famous sayings, God is most glorified when we are most dependent on Him. To not depend on Him in the workplace is to, is to depend on yourself, which leads to pride. Or when you're not doing well, leads to depression. So depend on Him. This will become evident in all that you do. And then I want, I'm trying to find a story that kind of summed up these two points. And I, I found this one, a former student of Howard Hendricks, uh, who was a professor of theology at Dallas Seminary. He recounts this, in, this incident this professor of his had on a plane. He tells it like this, he says, Dr. Howard Hendricks told of being on a flight where an obnoxious man was raising a stink about every minor grievance he could think of. Even though most people would have told the guy where the exit door was, each time the stewardess uh, responded with kindness and grace. After watching this for some time, Hendricks called her over and complimented her on her good attitude with this difficult man. He asked her for her name so that he could commend her to the president of the airline. He was taken aback when the stewardess responded, Thank you, sir, but I don't work for American Airlines. She looked like she worked for American Airlines. She had on the uniform, she had the name tag, 
You don't, Hendrik sputtered. No, she explained. I work for Jesus Christ. American Airlines just pays the freight. He goes on to say, wherever you work, if you see that you work primarily for Jesus Christ, the job takes on new dignity and meaning as you see yourself serving him. And so in these first two points, Paul really emphasizes the heart. He says, we are to work heartily as for the Lord. He says, we are to work with sincerity of heart. And so the logic then for us is to then fight. Fight for the affections, fight for the focus of your heart. The more radically God-centered we are, the more reverential awe we will have of Him, which will then begin to displace the fear of man. It will begin to displace those sinful, selfish motives in all that we do. But this becomes even more of a challenge. The more authority and the more uh, position we are given at work. How does a higher position, how does a higher status at work, how does it affect us? That leads us to the last point. Have a look at point number three. We can have a transformed work life by working with accountability. Accountability means accepting responsibility or being responsible in how you go about doing what you do. And this can be both on a, on a public level or on a private individual level. For instance, you know, a government hopefully is accountable to the, uh, the decisions and the laws that it makes that then affect its citizens. And individually, we are accountable to how we then respond and act accordingly. However, the problem comes in when those who are in positions of authority believe they're not accountable to anyone in terms of how they treat people, in terms of how they, they lead people. And unfortunately, I've seen this far too often in, in Africa, in certain African countries, where the, the governments or the presidents take on more of a dictatorship role and they believe they don't answer to anyone and that leads to oppression of their people, it leads to corruption corruption and oppression of the people who, who, who very likely voted them into position, people who are looking to their government, people who are looking to their presidents for help, for care, for provision. And unfortunately, this was the case in Paul's day. The masters of these slaves were, were accountable to no one. Like I said earlier, the culture of the day allowed them to treat their slaves however they wanted to, to treat them. And so they were in hopeless situations. But Paul encourages them. Paul reminds them that their masters will be held accountable. Look at verse 25. He says, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. So there is a little bit of ambiguity regarding exactly who Paul is talking about in this verse. Is it, is it the masters who are doing wrong or is it the slaves who are doing wrong? But I think that Paul is encouraging slaves in this context. Uh, um, and I think especially because he says that phrase, there is no partiality, meaning just because your masters are of a higher social standing than you, and they seem untouchable, they seem unaccountable regarding their actions towards you, he says, don't worry. God will pay them back. Because in God's economy, there's no partiality. He will bring about justice no matter who it is. So I can imagine that must have been incredibly comforting for them to hear that. Maybe also a bit of an indictment or inference that they're not to take matters into their own hands. And then Paul shifts gears towards the Christian masters where he reminds them that they're accountable too. He says this in verse 1 of chapter 4, Masters, 
Treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. You have a master in heaven, and more specifically, you have the sovereign creator of the universe keeping his eye on you, keeping you accountable in terms of how you treat your slaves. Now, a lot of people are a little bit confused about Paul's response here. Some of them say, well, surely Paul should have taken this opportunity to, to speak to the Christian masters and say, hey, set them free. Because as Christians, we don't believe in any form of slavery. But Paul knew, according to the context of his day, that slaves had no rights, they couldn't own any property, they, they had no serious financial resources, if any. And so setting them free would set them in a far worse place and condition, and most likely they would be snapped up by another master who would most likely treat them really badly. Other historians say this, it would have caused a bloody slave war with, with much human loss, because they say up to a third, even a half of the Roman population were all slaves. And so Paul seeks to redeem the situation by saying, you are to treat them justly and fairly. Completely countercultural. Completely countercultural. Because remember, a slave owner could just simply kill his slave if he wanted to and would not be held accountable to it. And Paul comes along and says, No, no, no. You've got to treat them justly, you've got to treat them fairly. As a Christian, as a Christian master, that means recognizing your slaves as fellow image bearers of God. You've got to remember, hey, they, they're born in the, in the image and likeness of God, just like you. Treat them as fellow members of your household. Because again, that's the, the context of this passage. Remember, Paul started off with marriage, then children, then parenting, and now he moves on to slaves. And he's basically saying everyone under your roof is to be treated justly and fairly. So the application that we take into our work situation is this. Number one, we take comfort. Sunrise, we take comfort. We're serving a God who has your back. Because you have and you will, by the very nature of the world that we're living in, you will experience some sort of injustice in the workplace that you will be powerless to do anything about. Most likely, many of you have experienced something like this. Hello? Am I? Where you've experienced some sort of injustice and there's just nothing that you can do about it. But we need to know nothing escapes the eye of our heavenly master. He says there's no partiality in his eyes. Meaning he loves and he cares for slaves who had no rights. And he's basically saying, you don't need. You don't need earthly rights. You don't need human rights. You've got the creator of the universe behind you. And he's got your back too, Sunrise. Because he says, he will repay the wrongdoer. Sometimes, if not most of the time, he will use the justice system of the day, of, of our current culture. Sometimes not. And if he doesn't, that doesn't mean that he's ignoring it or he's just let it slip by. Our responsibility is to rest in the promise of verse 25. God will pay back. So firstly, we take comfort. But secondly, we realize we are also accountable for our actions. Paul says, we have a master in heaven. So yes, that means conducting ourselves with reverential awe in, in all that we do and all that we, who we interact with. And so this verse requires us to know and to be aware of this master in heaven. 
Is Jesus your Lord and Savior at the workplace as well? Because if so, that will transform the way you deal with your employees, you, the way you deal with your clients. Knowing that you have a master in heaven should result in a humble disposition as opposed to an arrogant position of authority where you, where you think you have no accountability. Think about it from a gospel perspective. The only master who is justified to act harshly is our master in heaven. Because the Bible tells us his creation, his prized creation, turned its back on him to pursue sin, to pursue pride, to be mastered by other things like, like money, power, and status. And yet he had mercy on us. He still, he still dealt with the wrongdoing of that sin by taking it upon himself and then gave us his righteousness, gave us forgiveness. And so we take our cue from him. We don't take our cue from culture. We take our cue from him. We still deal with the, the wrongdoing in the workplace. So that means you, you confront employees, you confront colleagues who are, you know, have done wrong, who are acting inappropriately or working inappropriately, but you do it with grace because you and I have received grace. The proper use of grace and truth should bring about redemption. It should bring some repentance, some reform to the situation. Well, at least that should be the motive, our motive, our goal from our side. But here's what I want to say. I'll finish off with this. This master that we have in heaven is not a taskmaster. He's not a slave driver. He's not out to whip us every time we do something wrong. Rather, we have an almighty master who calls us to himself and says this. Have a look at this, Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I mean, that's, a, that's a incredible news. What an amazing invitation from our master in heaven. A boss who wants to give us rest. But then he says something strange. He goes on and he says, verse 21, 29, take, up my yoke, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So let's just clarify what a yoke is. It was a, attached to an oxen, uh, or it helped an oxen attach to a, to a cart or a plow or a donkey to a cart or, or a plow. And then the masters of this beast or beast would, would whip it to get it to pull these heavy loads or, or get it to plow these, these, these rough fields. And Jesus says, hey, I've got a yoke for you too. Meaning, you and I will always be in a position of subordination. We'll always be in a position of submission. I mean, Paul himself, who wrote this book, he calls himself a slave of Christ. But this yoke of slavery will give you rest as opposed to a burden because he says his yoke is easy, his yoke is light. Why is that? It's because our master has taken the heaviest yoke upon himself. The real burden that we were meant to carry, he took on himself. He took our yoke of sin upon himself and the full wrath of God because of that sin and gave us his yoke of righteousness, of grace, of mercy, 
of righteousness, of power to put off our old sinful self and to put on our new self created after his very image. So you know what that tells us? It tells us we have a boss or a master who wants to carry our burdens. He's already proven it on the cross. But he wants to carry our burdens. He wants to make our burden our burdens light. I mean, he already told, Peter tells us in one of his epistles, he tells us that we are to cast all of our anxieties upon him, upon our master. He wants to make our burdens light. And so what's our responsibility in this? Would you acknowledge him as the chief end for all that you do? Would you acknowledge him as the chief end in all that you do? Whatever you do, would you fight for the single focus of your heart on him And would you be aware and would you know that you are accountable to him for everything? Because that will transform your life and that will transform your working life. Because Jesus is enough for your work life. He is all that we need. Amen. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you. We trust in your word. We trust that you are all that we need. We trust that as you change us more and more into your image and likeness, that we will be empowered to work in such a way that you will be glorified. Our circumstances might be tough, but as we realize that we're working for you, we realize that you are with us, that you are helping us. And so I ask that you would help us be aware of you in the workplace. Help us be dependent on you so that you might be glorified in all that we do. Now, whatever we do, that you might be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.